we turn our attention to what might be called the libertarian left, or more popularly, anarchism. This is the same logic shared by Marx and Freud. Functioning libertarian socialist institutions, I think they are an interesting model that uh, I think is highly relevant. He also has a cat in a few of his pictures. If you've seen him, he has a cat as well. What's it called? Mr. No, Dr. No? What's it called? <laughs> I know you remember that, yeah. Austin Powers? The... No. no. Wait, am I thinking of something else? <laughs> James Bond. <laughs> no, I've had enough. Okay, have you seen the conspiracy theory? Wait. Okay, I go really hardcore into Star Wars <laughs> stuff sometimes, and it's not good for me. But there's a conspiracy theory, right? That Jar Jar Binks is a secret Sith Lord. Yes. And it's my favorite thing of all time. Absolutely. Because he's done many things. So he, he is the person who gave Emperor Palpatine ultimate power. And if you see in his movies, he's pretending to be clumsy, but he has secret skills. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks in the police state. <laughs> Oh my god, he becomes the, becomes the ultimate dictator. So, my name is uh, James Whitfield. I'm a PhD student at the University of Warwick um, with Hannah and Paula, uh, which is really nice and really cool. I'm really glad to be here. So, what does my work touch on? My work touches on the history of deaths and custody in the UK, and I'm taking, I'm tackling that through kind of a genealogical analysis that Foucault also deploys, and that's where my kind of work intersects with his own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Real fun and dark. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to start today, embarrassingly, I'm going to call myself out, with have we read Foucault before, before reading the text that we're reading today? So what's our relationship with Foucault? Um, I read History of Sex. Volume one, no one cares about volume two. <laughs> no one cares, no, there's four volumes and no one cares about the other three. <laughs> I thought there were only two. Well, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I read History Success Volume One, obviously, parts of Discipline and Punish because of the art history stuff, because he just shows up. And obviously, because I studied a little bit of architecture and post structuralism, a lot of American architects read a lot of Foucault, Derrida, and all those like contemporaries. So it's more like I read specific things and then I danced around Foucault <laughs> and never went back. <laughs> yeah, I've read, I've read a bit. <laughs> read too much. Well, not even too much. No, I actually haven't read that. Like in comparison to other people, I don't think I've even touched the surface really with what I've read. So I've read bits and pieces of, of Foucault's work kind of here and there. So read Discipline and Punish, so that's a big one for me because I'm coming from kind of a criminological field, so that's kind of the, the iconic one in Foucault in that sort of field. And then I've also read a few of his lecture series.
series, so Security, Territory, and Population, The Birth of Biopolitics, also read The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, um, and also uh, Archaeology of Knowledge, which is one of Foucault's most annoying reads in the world. <laughs> it is utterly incomprehensible most of the time. I remember, I remember I was really dumb and I read it when I was like an undergrad student and I was like, what on earth is this absolute lunatic on about? Like, I could <laughs> not believe what was going on. Yes, that was a big mistake, but but I, I re, re kind of uh, reread that and, and, and it got a little better with time. Mm-hmm. And then I've read, you know, excerpts and interviews of Foucault like here and there as well, because, you know, it's kind of his style. He likes to, you know, do a few interviews here and there and yeah. I just remembered, I also read part of his like stuff on linguistics, which is a wild. I don't know, because like, uh, we're going to hint upon this, but like Foucault's work, every single book, he like introduces an idea and then goes, well, that's enough. I'm bored now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I no longer need you. Goodbye. (laughs) I feel like Foucault is my own personal ghost, just like following me around. Um, being like, please read me, and I just look and go, mm, no. So I've read, <laughs> I've read like loads of bits and pieces, mostly history of sexuality, volume one. But I feel like the first time I read it, I was like, just you know when you don't process any information. Yeah. So history of sexuality, volume one, and then he comes up in nearly everything I read because I do a lot of queer theory. So he's everywhere, yeah. all the time, and I'm not reading. Or listening to him. <laughs> He's our own neoliberal. <laughs> Just always there. Which is why I was like, oh, I'm so excited to read for going. Be smarter. I can't wait. <laughs> Are we smarter? Maybe. I don't know if I understand. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm smarter. Honestly, it's okay. I feel like that's basically everyone who's reading him. Like, even if you've read him, like, for years, I think most people are just like barely comprehending what's going on. I just do the casual academic thing of being like, yeah, I know what this means. Hmm. And then if people disagree, you go, well, this is my understanding of it. Yeah, this is my interpretation. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm going to do to make sure no one gets too angry at me. <laughs> so who is Foucault? Foucault essentially, I would say, is a French philosopher and historian. One of the major parts about his work is that You can contrast him a bit to kind of more, I guess, conventional Marxist approaches because he is quite dissatisfied with how they understand power working and how they understand things operating in society. And he's very critical of their form of, I guess, structuralism, if we could term it that. So, I don't know, taking a very arbitrary example, mechanisms of capitalism, profit and loss accumulation, dictating changes to various different social structures. So in my context, the prison system, for an example. So instead of certain institutions, I don't want to go too deep into this, but there is kind of a Marxist line of thought in kind of criminology that there's changes to houses of correction, imprisonment, and those are motivated by kind of broader structural shifts in terms of profit loss, industrialization, new technologies emerging at that time. And Foucault would 
would potentially be slightly critical of this structuralism, of, of this way of approaching how we should analyse society. And I guess what we're trying to cover in this kind of podcast is what is the other approach? You know, what, what is that going on? What, what is he trying to get at, really? That is quite different from, from this structuralism. Yeah, and I think, like, the two chapters that you selected are a really good insight because these are lectures, so he's he's actually working it out as he's kind of doing it. But specifically chapter two and, like, a little portion of chapter 10 mm-hmm. where he introduces, like, Bentham and, like, his focus on 18th and 19th. 19th century philosophy, specifically French philosophy, that led to the creation of like the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution. All these things are based on like truths, and he's kind of going back and like looking at me like, mm, is it? <laughs> also, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but it's the birth of biopolitics that we're um, reading. <laughs> I don't know if we've mentioned it, I will listen more, but birth of biopolitics, that's what we're reading, chapter 2, chapter 10. Just briefly, if I'm able to kind of bring it back to another thing about Foucault that's important mm-hmm. about who he is, mm-hmm. is that his title um, is Chair of History of Systems of Thought, and I think that's kind of important to get at because throughout this whole thing we're going to be talking a lot about truth and he is very much interested in systems of producing truth essentially and and that is quite important to to remember throughout all this i think so why why this book (laughs) why this one well like you said it's a series of lectures Mm -hmm. all the chapters have specific dates of when the lectures were yeah so i think this book is important because a few people have thought about it as a response to people critiquing Foucault in Discipline and Punish for focusing a bit too much on how punishment is enacted upon a body, essentially. And it's quite a, maybe not small way of understanding power, but it is only one very particular frame through punishment. And there is a question there, what about the state? Where is the state coming in? And this kind of lecture series is, can be thought of in, in some way as a response to, okay, here is where Foucault thinks the state is. Here is how Foucault understands the state. And the way he does that is refusing to use the word state, because of course um, <laughs> he would do that. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of one way of thinking about it. Yeah. And then you want, or do you want me to just continue? No, oh, you were going to give the historical context, weren't you, Pella? <laughs> yeah. So when's the book um, written? Well, the lectures, when did the lectures come? So the lectures have been given in the late 70s. And this is, I think we both agreed earlier, that this is a time where Foucault was also, you know, being televised and like debates, specifically the one that I was listening to today was with Chomsky in 1971. So these things are sort of already been discussed for many many years so when he's given these lectures it's you know in these very crowded lecture halls or classrooms it's not really like him with a microphone with and you know be like woo we're not thinking type talk <laughs> you know we're not thinking type talk oh he would hate a type talk <laughs> but as i heard from one of my old former professors um, who actually attended both a Derrida and a Foucault lecture a lot of these were in like really dingy classrooms somewhere in France and people are sitting on top of chairs or underneath tables just people like on top of each other just having a discussion afterwards 
sometimes. So there's like little breaks where people are laughing or interacting with him. So this is not a fully structured argument in this book, but instead it is sort of him working out his own policies, I feel. And he references like, oh, we'll talk about it next week or in the next month. So it's him also, I think, giving himself enough time to think about stuff. But in the context of this book, a very brief history, France is going through it. (laughs) This is post-war France, but this is post-revolutionary war France. Mm -hmm. France has actually never finished its revolution. It's currently still happening. So this is... France after 1945, absolutely destroyed because of the Second World War. On top of that, Charles de Gaulle, who was at the time, I think the longest serving prime minister or president, whatever you call it, had just died in 1970. From 1954 to 1962, there was Algerian War for Independence. So a lot of these things are happening all at once. With the specific um, discussions on state power, the last execution by guillotine in France was in 1977. So these things are happening all at the same time. So it is not a surprise that he's kind of looking at France and going, hmm, state power, interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the Vietnam War, Watergate, and all these things are happening in America, which is, I think, also the reason he's looking at neoliberalism. America found out very quickly that it can profit from war, so it started going to war. And yeah, like I think specifically given the dates, 78, 79, this is a time of change. America's about to go full Reagan. <laughs> so I don't think it's a surprise that these things are being brought up. And so he's also expanding on um, the idea of governmentality. Yeah, he is. So he's expanding on the idea of governmentality throughout this entire lecture. And, and it's really one of the reasons why this lecture series is, is important, or this lecture in particular, is because he starts to outline this kind of concept a bit more thoroughly. I guess in brief, and incredibly frustratingly, <laughs> the way governmentality is defined is the conduct of oneself and others. Anything that demands you behave in a certain way or creates an incentive for yourself to change your own behaviours in certain ways, these are the things that are kind of governing your actions or forms of kind of governmentality themselves. And I say it's frustrating because whenever you see someone define it as the conduct of oneself and others, you kind of get a little bit frustrated because you think, that's not enough. That can't. That can't just be it. Um, and 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 it's it is more complicated than that. But I I would say that is in uh, a nutshell what the term is. And I also think if we're talking about terms a little bit at the current moment, it's important to point out that Foucault himself is going to use a lot of terms during this, and a lot of terms that we'll have a lot of different associations with. And I think it's important to remember that Foucault is going to use these words in his own way that's very detached from what other people will use them as. So you kind of have to perform a kind of mental exercise or mental gymnastics when you read him a little bit, which is to go, okay, when Foucault is talking about this, he does not necessarily mean what I understand it to be already. Um, So we have to just keep that in mind. I think that's why a lot of people refer to it as, like, Foucauldian or, like, Mm -hmm. Foucaultisms. Yeah, he really does have his own definition for things. 
He's like, oh, this definition? No, that won't do. <laughs> essentially, essentially, very much. Um, just uh, to give an example of good mentality, because you put it in the notes and hopefully it was mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's still correct. So you said um, it's a ways of almost like managing people's conduct, essentially. And CCTV is a good example because it shapes people's behavior in particular ways for particular ends. But it's more passive, right? There's not somebody necessarily on the end of that the best example i ever think of is the bus because it's you as a as sitting on a bus seeing the um video of other people on the bus the bus driver's not really looking at that they're driving the bus so it's all you looking at each other being like what are you doing (laughs) yeah you doing something that you shouldn't do and under that sort of gaze you want to kind of Manipulate your behaviour to form in a good way, you know, and make sure that you are not doing anything that would potentially, either in your imagination or in reality, be considered kind of suspicious or, or kind of breaching norms, even or even you know the legal uh, structures, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also not secretive. Like I think, like the bus example, I think of like the co-op till that light comes on and it's like yes I'm going to be paying for all my food but like having the camera there is just like did I ring everything? Mm-hmm. I can't steal this candy bar <laughs> it's it's very um, smile you're on camera Yeah, mm-hmm. where was that the other day? Tesco? and there's like a full like you can see a video of yourself right? Mm-hmm. that's so weird that is an odd thing <laughs> but it yeah. is specifically here in the UK it's you guys actually have the CCTV up on display and it tells you on the streets that's like, hey, CCTV's active here. Small, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the States, um, it's yeah. hidden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's secret. Mm-hmm. And you can also get, um, going off topic, but you can get in your, if you're driving, you can get a thing that tells you when the monitors are coming yeah. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is going too far, but another example you raised earlier was about, and earlier as in before the podcast started, um, was religion, because he starts talking about religion. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. So religion's a really good one, because in religion, uh, in religion, I'm just going to say religion, religion. Um, let's let's take Christianity as an example, um, because he uses that in the previous lecture series to this, he uses it in security territory and population a little bit, um, and uses kind of pastoral Christian values in some ways, but let's take kind of what we think of as Christianity now, so in Christianity you have to kind of manipulate your behaviour in certain ways that adhere to kind of what being, what a good Christian would be. You have to kind of become that sort of individual. You have to kind of follow certain strictures, certain guidance that is given to you and kind of behave in a way another good Christian would. And it's not necessarily someone demanding that you do it. It's, it's you're doing it yourself, but it, it, it's, not, it's not an exactly an oppressive mechanism in a way because you are kind of yourself trying to fit this ideal that you want to kind of aspire to because you want to follow um, in the footsteps of Jesus or something like that, you know? But there's also um, omnipotence and, like, God is always watching, even Mm -hmm. if someone else isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think where he brings it up is, like, the role of a priest within, like, the Catholic Church. While, like, no one else is watching, you're literally tattling on yourself. You're going up to the priest in a confessional and saying, hey here's the things I did wrong and I want to be forgiven. 
so it goes into the like whole like criminality and like it, it's also like the religious law almost like I broke God's code I need to pay mm-hmm. I need to amend and I wanted to mention one other thing if we're on this kind of mm-hmm. let's go because we're on this theoretical trend <laughs> um, so we might as well also talk about biopolitics because I mean the lecture series we're covering is called The Birth of Biopolitics but Foucault doesn't really talk about biopolitics once <laughs> it? Um, I mean yep. He mentions the word biopolitics to mention the fact that he has just not talked about it the entire time of his lecture in biopolitics. So, so it's a very funny thing that, <laughs> that, that we have this thing of like, oh, I, I expect to have some sort of, uh, some sort of explanation on that, but there isn't. It's, it's more complicated than him just ignoring it and forgetting to write about it in his lecture. It's because I would say... Biopolitics, if we define it, you know, kind of briefly, is just the administration of a population's health or kind of its well-being in some way. You kind of need to manipulate it and ensure that it is perfectly healthy, perfectly normal, all these sorts of things. And the reason why Foucault kind of delves straight into liberalism and then neoliberalism is because these kinds of mentalities of governing or rationalities of governing are the way biopolitics is being enacted. So you have to talk about them because this is the way populations are being administered in the way. You can't really just talk about biopolitics on its own because you have to mention the fact that it is being directed in a very particular manner. And that manner is through essentially liberalism and neoliberalism. And um, just one last point before we go into the deep dive in the chapters. This lecture series is translated so we read a translation and translation is complicated it's not a neutral process i don't know paula if you want to speak more about this yeah so it's something we really need to pay attention to is that with foucaultisms <laughs> there's also foucaultisms being translated into english so obviously it depends on which version you get it depends on who's wrote it, their political alliances, all these things. So we're reading an English version. We're not reading the original French. My French is not that good. And uh, reading Foucault in French makes me want to uh, die. So, <laughs> <laughs> so please take note that we are using a translation. In some points, I think I did use a French to Spanish translation because the languages are similar in root and for some definitions it actually made more sense than the English one but for the most part we're using English translation um if you have a problem with that become our French translator (laughs) mercy buckets (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say oh and last thing I lied actual last thing where does this come in relation to Foucault's other work so again, I think it links back to what I said about discipline and punish, so mm-hmm. it is a continuation of that form of analysis. I think also I would say it's potentially a refinement of his analysis and discipline and punish. I think his analysis and discipline and punish, potentially it's not as refined in certain ways because unlike discipline and punish, this analysis doesn't make very many judgments on nearly anything when it comes to neoliberalism. And that's important because Foucault in this lecture series, all he's doing is kind of building an image of what neoliberalism is, essentially, um, and what kind of mentalities of governance are. Whereas in Discipline and Punish, he starts to make kind of more active judgments on 
prison system and, and how it operates and things like that. But by this time, he starts to move away from that form of judgment. And it's why a lot of people kind of start to think of Foucault as kind of adoring neoliberalism in a certain way, because he just doesn't critique it. He just builds it. He just shows the operation of it. What comes after? Do we know? I think it will be the things that he does on the self and truth. So okay. it's on the government of the living, and then oh. subject, subjectivity and truth, and then the hermeneutics of the subject, and the government of self and others, the courage of truth. So then he starts to go really into the government and truth, basically. Start I wish I could be that productive, so that's um, what I'm thinking. Should we, should we move on to uh, chapter two? Oh, yeah. And talk about, <laughs> talk about what is uh, happening in the lecture series on uh, yeah. chapter two. What's the summary? Give so us the lowdown. I honestly wanted to give a summary in a very brief way, in basically one or two, one sentence, basically. Wow. Which is wow. great. I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> but essentially, I felt like this was attempting to show how rationalities of governance change over time and how when you develop a new rationality of government, that establishes a new way of truth being decided in the world. So the change is from the raison d'etat to liberalism, essentially. And it's important to kind of define what those kind of two things are, I would say. So the raison d'etat is essentially, it's a rationality, it's a mentality of governance that occurs essentially after, a few centuries after the Reformation. And it kind of emerges with the more kind of centralization of the administrative state, essentially. And the ideology of it is that no longer does the state's aims need to be defined by divine command or faith, essentially. There's no longer a resort to religious ideas for how a state should, should function. Instead, the state should expand its own internal resources in order to be more kind of competitive with other states. So it must know its population. It must understand its population and its territory. It must ensure that territory is used in productive manner and ensure the population is used in a productive manner mm -hmm. to make sure that all these features of it are utilised in the best way possible. And it's an unlimited rationale. Anything could come under this. So... Essentially, if you think about uh, every single institution should be directed towards this idea, towards this enhancement. Um, you should get people surveying everything, taking surveys, taking statistical kind of analysis of, of all features of your state so you know it and so you can expand upon it. So is it like demographic information or is it like more than that? Anything. Anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think his use of market here is really... I think this is. So the use of the market here gives a really good example of what the transition becomes. So then he says the liberalism comes into the picture and it messes everything up. It doesn't really mess everything up, but it, but it changes things a little bit. And liberalism essentially starts to believe that there are actually natural laws and natural processes occurring within the state itself, whether that be the people of the state or other kind of more invisible market forces that really need to be paid attention to. You can't intervene willy-nilly 
because it will have massive consequences you just can't see or find out and the best way to kind of ensure a state can be at its best is to pay attention to these forces to understand them and then ensure that if you do intervene you intervene in line with these natural processes with these natural laws that occur and the example of the market's great the example of the market's perfect because in this chapter you have one idea of the market which is just the market should be selling at a just price to basically protect against fraud essentially it is very much based on this legal regulation this very precise not precise but it's it's a manner that is very restrictive especially to someone who would consider themselves a liberal liberals would say actually this is a ridiculous way to go about things you cannot intervene so heavily in the market because it will distort it in certain ways and it just won't be productive in the long term you have to ensure that when there is let's say a shortage of a particular good you actually don't necessarily always need to intervene within that because the market will self correct mm-hmm. at a certain point the market will fix itself yeah it, it becomes kind of a bit tricky because yeah. it's dealing with kind of very economic uh, rationalities but essentially the market becomes a site of truth in the sense that your policy has to be dictated by whether or not it obeys these natural laws of the market of supply and demand yeah it's it's almost like marx's definition of, of commodity fetishism and then he completely undoes it <laughs> so like with like this is a very brief haven't touched marks in years definition of commodity fetishism but it's like the true value of an object and then like the labor and work and material like going from let's say like a piece of bread going from the from the growing of the bread the grinding of the grain the water everything else that was involved and then finally to the baker selling it in the front door like that is the life and span of material and it's Foucault looking at that going yes but also <laughs> interest <laughs> in making profit. Um, I think what's really interesting in a way that these two chapters that we're discussing also connect is the use of the word interest. Like there's in- like the interest rate of not just an item in market, but also of the interest rate of like relationships from like the individual to the bigger picture that everything has an interest rate. That's why I've been calling it like the liberalism tit for tat approach. <laughs> how do you how do you mean interest rate? I don't really. I, I like, that's where I wanted to ask is like he he uses interest a mm. lot and I don't know if he meant like interest rate or interest as in like looking in, mm-hmm. like being interested in something, mm-hmm. or if those two things kind of merge and become another Foucault definition. I'm going to quote directly, it's in the principle to which the governmental reason must confirm interest is now interests, a complex interplay between individuals okay. and collective yes. interests. I get what you mean. So by interests, essentially what the government has to take into account and what liberalism has to take into account is no longer that you can simply regulate a society in a very strict way the individual you are regulating let's say the person selling the good is not someone who can just simply be disciplined and told you have to sell at this price 
otherwise we will kind of come down on you with the hammer of the law. No, that person and actually everyone involved in the chain that creates a particular good has particular interests, ideas, agency. They have agency that must be taken into account. You have to take that into account in order to construct or perform any policy because these individuals are not ones that are simple docile bodies that you can inscript or change or do whatever you want. These are people who have their own kind of aspirations and they have their own incentives and you have to work with those natural incentives that they themselves have in order to actually create a functioning economy, a functioning society. Yeah. So that's what I would say interest means in that kind of context. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's, it's kind of like a bit of both. Mm-hmm. It's like the estate going, yes, interest, make your money. But also we are interested in you yeah. and how you're making this money. Exactly. And, and we're also letting you run free. It's Foucault so, kind of yeah. this plays is, with that. So this is why in the end, so you have other people who take up Foucault's ideas a bit later. So Rose, for instance, mm-hmm. um, Nicholas Rose, who basically says we eventually start to govern through someone's freedom. Someone believes that they are free to choose whatever they want. And we use that advertisement of you are free to choose anything you want. And we, and we encourage that in so many different ways through encouraging people to be entrepreneurs and use that kind of, I don't know, excessive freedom that they have to create businesses. Yeah, I'm going to derail this a tiny bit because I have a question. So how does that work? And not Foucault's neoliberalism, but neoliberalism in other people's ideas. How does that work with the neoliberal idea of you have a choice, but it's a fake choice almost. Like Mm -hmm. you have a set of choices and those choices are constricted, but you might not be aware that they're constricted, but you do have a choice. You have choice. You have freedom, but not really. <laughs> it's like in a video game. It's just like choose your path, and it's four options. Yeah, literally, that's the same. And I do. I don't want to derail it, but Tinder works on that kind of choice. You have choice, but you don't really. Yes, yeah, because it works on an algorithm. Mm. It's the advertisement of choice. Yeah. It's the use of choice, and it's the production of choice to essentially guide your behavior, guide your actions. In Tinder, for instance, the selling that, oh yes, you have choice, you have all these people, mm. all these potential options, and this is this is why you should, you know, use our particular app, because look at it, you have so much freedom here, you must use our app, it has so much opportunity for you to fulfil yourself, for you to fundamentally fulfil who you are with the best companion possible. Um, it also takes into yeah. consideration values, because mm. it's just like... Obviously, like actually, dating apps is a great example. <laughs> Good job, girl. Because like I was thinking of like the complete opposite, Grinder, which is yes. based on distance. <laughs> which, by the way, that's so scary. Yep. Yeah. Glad I'm not on it. <laughs> but like that is another form of potentiality. It's like look at all these choices within a hundred miles, <laughs> or within four steps. It happened to a friend once. It was like literally like 10 feet away I was like that's frightening I was with a friend once and they were on Grindr and they were like how is this person this close to me are they under my bed like what's happening (laughs) (laughs) 
I have no idea where they were. The fear of Grindr in an apartment complex. <laughs> that has to be a horror movie. But like, but you have that, and then you have like, you know, the horrible ones like eHarmony or whatever. Plenty or, of fish. Um, what is, what's the farming one? Farming one? Farmers only. And there's, isn't there like um. Christian um, Mingle. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> There's also due date. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But these are all like very specific choices within like a bigger complex structure. So not only do you have choice on the app, you have choice of the apps. Mm-hmm. Choice on choice. <laughs> and you don't have to even use the apps. You can just go and meet your crusty person in real life. Uh, but is that going to happen? Everyone's on apps these days. You are both in relationships. Don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, but I was on the apps before, and truly, that was hell on earth. But I did meet um, my partner on an app, so, you know. Yeah. Foucault would have loved him. <laughs> <laughs> he would love Grindr. Yeah. He would be against it and still download it. Oh, I don't know if we'll mention it here, but I remember when Halversam laid into Grindr, and that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I just want to hang out with him. <laughs> <laughs> and I know he won't. <laughs> but ever, you should have seen the crowd because it's all like queer people and they were like. <laughs> and they have How dare you? They, they, no, but also, they have not read enough Halberstam to like be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't be surprised. Yeah. Also, um, I might derail us again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it's yeah, a related cool. derailing. Yeah, yeah. I wanted Please to talk do. about the because... veridiction thing. Yeah, because it comes up a lot and yeah. I mm-hmm. have a definition for veridiction so mm-hmm. I think we could start from there and then be like is it relevant? this is one I had trouble with so I'm really yeah. excited so veridiction is something that holds truth according to a particular authority rather than being independently true so for example under neoliberalism states use market logic and economic calculus as defining authority for certain decisions but it's not like an essential it's not an essential truth. It's just a truth according to this person or um, organization said so. Mm-hmm. So in, in this um, text, the market is becoming what Foucault calls a site of veridiction. And that's where my knowledge ends. <laughs> that, that was perfect. That's oh, exactly yeah. what it is. They, genuinely, you just summed it up perfectly. Wow, that's I'm a genius. That's, that's what it helps. is. It's, it's a site of truth-making in a sense because mm-hmm. it's a site where you through particular logics through particular market logics as you said and market rationalities you decide what is the best policies in certain situations mm-hmm. what is the most ideal form of governance that can that can be taken at a particular point in time don't worry if you can't answer this no, no, go for <laughs> do you have like a real life example other than the yes. neoliberalism one that mm. I just said, like, is there actually like the a Dow. concrete example of of this happening? Yeah. If we talk about potentially the, I, I really want to link it to the current kind of gas crisis situation. Ooh. So let's think about that for a little bit. Current let's think in twenty twenty. Yeah. Twenty two. Oh my god. Oh my god. Let's think about. Let's think about what Liz Truss has done, which is put a cap on the um, the household price of gas, the average household, which is like 20,500 or something, um, 2,500 pounds or something 2, like that. 2,500. Yeah, yeah. 2,500. So that, that's the cap, right? So this is the maximum price that can... It's a bit complicated, but technically, this is what energy companies can be expected. They have to charge, right? Mm. This is a violation of the market, 
This is a technically, it's a violation of the neoliberal principles of the market, of good economic management, because essentially what it has done is it has not allowed gas prices to rise massively in accordance with what they should do because gas prices are at an all-time high. Mm. So if we were technically actually allowing the market to behave as it should and as it potentially needs to, then we wouldn't cap anything because we would say, actually, the market should, you know, charge this extra amount. People need to kind of, in order for, you know, certain businesses to thrive and certain other businesses to kind of potentially go bust, we need this to happen in order for the market to competitively function for the best businesses who get the most efficiency out of their gas use and all this other stuff, for them to survive, the others to die away and be replaced by other more efficient industries. We shouldn't allow this kind of cap because essentially what it does is it distorts the marketplace. It actually ensures that people are protected in a way and and that is potentially not according to neoliberalism, what should happen, if, if that makes some sort of sense. Well, yeah, it goes against like, mm. supply and demand structure. Yes, exactly. Directly intervening. So mm-hmm. um, neoliberalism is stopping the freedom of the market. But it's also, what is freedom of a market? You're adding value to a thing that doesn't really exist. Like, obviously, gas exists, money exists, but like some form of invisible, omnipotent, money capitalistic god overlooks this and is the one that sets the rate of exchange for these goods and services. I also want to point out just really clearly that we're not saying that people should pay ridiculous amounts for their gas. Mm-hmm. Like, that no. is truly yeah, awful. Yeah. We're, we're following Davy Foucault. Yeah, but if you, <laughs> we're thinking about theoretically... What neoliberalism yeah. would mm-hmm. advise, potentially in any given kind of... What, yeah. what a kind of pure understanding of what neoliberalism is yeah. um, would kind of want for the state, essentially. And it would want to follow the market fluctuations yeah. to allow for them to occur. Yeah, to I just limit intervention. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that was yeah. not misunderstood. This is probably why I shouldn't have picked such a risky <laughs> no, example. No, I think it's a, okay. um, an important example because I kept seeing in the news that people were mad at this trust for doing that, and I was like, I don't quite understand why. And now that does make sense because economically minded, I am not. <laughs> well, it's also because like the implications this has on other things, which is also a very Foucault look at market neoliberalism, all that jazz. Because if this happens with gas prices because of an emergency, what happens if we become accustomed to that emergency state and then we just start implementing it into other things? Which is, I think, where he's really going at, especially with the introduction of the penal policy stuff. Before we go to chapter 10, I think mm-hmm. it's important to bring up... And this this will be a bridge. A bridge? Mm-hmm. A bridge. A bridge? <laughs> a bridge. <laughs> um, Foucault's obsession with truth and knowledge. Mm. Foucault's obsessed. Yeah. As we mentioned before, Foucault then goes on to talk about truth a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Foucault loves a bit of it. And I think we've been dancing around the topic a little bit already, <laughs> um, in a good way, which is that Foucault really wants to get to the heart of how we can say certain things are true and certain things are false. 
So how can we judge the, let's say, Liz Truss's economic policy is a good thing or a bad thing? According to what frameworks are we possibly able to judge that is true or not? So how are we able to critique it? And the way we're able to critique it is potentially through a neoliberal frame, which is to say that, oh, it doesn't correspond to the natural laws of the market. That That's one potential reading of it. Foucault is so obsessed with truth and knowledge because, again, it's fascinating to see how we have changed throughout history our understanding of what ostensibly or what other people could say is the same thing almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How we have understood our kind of approach to crime, for instance, fundamentally differently throughout the ages. And, and that these things are very, very interesting for Foucault. Mm-hmm. How can we say that our current approach to crime is better or more truthful than another? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and I think that the truth and knowledge is the only thing connecting all of his books, to be yeah, quite honest. Very much. Because even his earlier works, he was questioning the truth in language and how we communicate and all these things. So it's kind of developing of like, okay, like we can't trust our own language. Now we can't trust our own thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk about that later. Like what is, why question truth? Why do this? I don't know if we have an answer, but we'll see. No, we, do we? We have thoughts. We have brain in... But are they true? <laughs> I also wanted to bring up a quote um, about the, the idea of truth where Foucault says... The regime of veridiction, in fact, is not a law of truth, but the set of rules enabling one to establish which statements in a given discourse can be described as true or false. That's perfect. Yeah. That's absolutely perfect. So I think that sums up truth, knowledge. I think I have a quote that will connect us to chapter 10. Oh, yeah. Which is the one I said uh, before we started recording, which is, what is the utility value of government and all actions of government in a society where the exchange determines the true value of things? And it's like, oof, that's a good question, Foucault. You don't answer it. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) So chapter 10 is essentially Foucault beginning to introduce the idea that neoliberalism can go into the the idea or kind of the rationality of neoliberalism uh, can actually evolve into different planes that are not associated with the economy. So it can evolve into different kind of, I guess, maybe even disciplines like criminology that have absolutely no relation or, or on the surface have no relation to the market. It's this idea that actually neoliberalism isn't just this kind of, I don't know, we can't really term it a wrong economic policy or rationality. It is something more than that. It's an active production of new ways of governing the world. This is what it is. It's not just this, um, what some critics would potentially argue a misunderstanding of how economic regulation should take place. It is something we need to take a bit more seriously than that. I think it's the introduction also of new forms of reality and Mm. what reality means to very specific entities. Because specifically when I was uh, in in this chapter, which I really liked, 
it did take two reads. <laughs> but like it is beginning with um, the relationship between like mother and child and like how ne- neoliberalism works with that, which is like yes. everything is transactional. Yes. Even the exactly. smallest of interactions. You know, it's, it's also quite Freudian. <laughs> your mom takes care of you, so you take care of her in the future. Or your income takes care of her. Remember, this is Foucault in the 70s. Yeah. Women in, like, power suits were not told in 1980. <laughs> it's also really creepy. His using neoliberalism also as a familial structure. Yeah. Because, you know, as someone that lived in the States most of their life, like, in Puerto Rican descent, the U.S. was seen as, like, a parental figure. Like, there was a huge expression in Spanish. It was, like, when America sneezes, Puerto Rico catches a cold. Like, we're very dependent on this sort of structure and neoliberalism mm-hmm. currently. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's becoming a problem. I think, I think partly what Foucault wants to do is to make it creepy, to make this mm-hmm. kind of to apply neoliberalism and to describe it in such a way that we start to think it is slightly creepy what we're doing or slightly odd that we're kind of applying this very transactional frame to things that we really have never thought about being a transaction like the mother-son relationship. And, and if we want to yeah flesh that out a little bit and kind of describe how Foucault talks about that, the woman cares for the child as an investment of human capital, that as an investment that the woman makes that will pay off in the future because that child will eventually look after her. It is this very much, oh, I am doing this for my self-interested motivation. And my self-interest ensures, actually, the correct functioning of society. Also, I'm not sure, because I Mm. don't have it in my notes. I just have a note that says, this was interesting. And I'm like, wow, go me. (laughs) Very helpful. It's all right. Was there there a bit that spoke about it, how it's not just between, you know, it's not just between the mother and child. It's also raising this child so they become not, like... I want to say an agent of the state, but not like in that way, so that they become a good worker, a good, you know, family member themselves, a productive member of society. So they become productive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very much about that. (laughs) I wasn't um, imagining things. Invest your child with the capabilities to succeed in the economic marketplace so they can eventually, you know, care for you. Mm-hmm. If not, then, then what, what are you going to do in your kind of older age? I think it's also specifically in that mother-child, like that section of this work as well, the introduction of like different levels of economic prosperity and how that also alters their relationships. So in the quote, he says, a wealthy family, that is to say a high-income family, that is to say, he says it again, (laughs) a family whose components have a high human capital will have as its immediate and rational economic project the transmission of a human capital at least as high to, to its children, which implies a set of investments, both financial terms and in terms of time on both the parents. And I think it's going off of what you said on financial and interest and all these things also time mm-hmm. time is a huge theme throughout all of this and definitely done on purpose he he talks about time right in the beginning and then ends on like incarceration and all these things where you literally serve time yeah it's um 
I was just gonna say, I was trying to explain this to my family the other day, and they just like were like, okay, let's move. Because <laughs> they were like, what? Because I, I talk a lot about, at least at the minute, I'm talking a lot about of space and time and how space and time can be used as resources. But it's interesting, I think a lot of people don't think about time as a resource, right? If you're investing time into mm -hmm. something, it doesn't have to just be money, it doesn't have to just be, you're literally investing parts of your life, you're, you know, like all of us now, we're investing parts of our lives to record this. I, I think it's interesting to think of it like that, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to also talk a bit about... Um, uh, if we're talking about kind of, yeah, serving time and the use of time in that sense, and then moving on from that to talk about criminality, essentially, mm -hmm. and, and think about how neoliberalism actually changes how we view criminals, how we view how punishment should be enacted upon a person. And this is one of the reasons why I chose this chapter, because I feel like punishment can show very clearly different regimes of truth and knowledge for Foucault. Mm -hmm. So... You can think about what he's doing now through the work of Gary Becker, who he cites quite constantly. And Becker is essentially viewing the criminal in a very different way to most people, how most people view the criminal, um, or <laughs> someone committing a crime, which is that someone committing a crime can be assessed as a rational self-interest actor that will respond to incentive structures. So essentially what will happen is if you create the penalty for something like a parking fine, so someone's parked and you create a particular penalty for that, they will respond to that depending on how high the penalty is and how likely they will get caught. And so they will adjust their behaviour depending upon that. Now the real key, real key here and the kind of more revolutionary thing about neoliberalism is that it says that we shouldn't actually necessarily prevent all crime. It goes, actually, <laughs> this costs a lot of money, potentially, to enforce surveillance over these parking spaces and, and to, you know, process these penalties. It requires a lot of paperwork, a lot of, you know, legal, bureaucratic shenanigans going on. And so they're basically like, okay, if it costs so much, we need to determine how much it costs to you know, establish this fine versus how much it costs to actually have this crime happen. And if it costs actually too much to prevent it, well, we shouldn't actually prevent it. Having a certain amount of crime that is you know, not too costly is probably fine. This is kind of the whole point, which is that we actually should have a normal amount of crime that doesn't fluctuate too much and it maintains a consistent amount. And that's okay because if we, you know, clamp down on it all, it would kind of cost too much money, too much effort, too much time, too much resources. If we talk about time, that's a massive consideration for these kind of neoliberal analysis. And there was the whole stuff about um, drugs and yeah. how drugs were um, mm -hmm. criminalized and dealt with in a certain way. But <laughs> Which was, I was living for that portion. It was so good. <laughs> Because also this is the beginning of the war on crime, mm -hmm. uh, the war on drugs, I'm sorry, <laughs> the war on crime, there's always been a war on crime, <laughs> the war on drugs, this is like Grandpapa Bush still working mm -hmm. with the FBI, 
This is, yeah, this is before he goes and becomes vice president to Reagan. So the, these things are in the lexicon. But where I was, I, it just came to me, and this is going to take a very dark turn, but also the value of human life, specifically using American neoliberalism. If anything, since the early 2000s, we've been looking at the value of human life between like the war in Iraq and like the Afghanistan invasion, but also police in the States and Black Lives Matter. Like what is the value of human life? And that goes into interpretation of truth because a police officer wouldn't shoot a millionaire, but anyone they consider lesser than they're willing to sacrifice their time and whatever else in favor of the easier route. And it goes into like surveillance and all this stuff. So I think this is where this particular chapter really did hit home. And well, obviously we've been talking about Foucault not really defining anything. It's more like taking a mirror into what neoliberalism is causing and the deterioration that it's also leaving in its wake. I also, on a, because um, I think that's a really important point, on a lesser level <laughs> and a lesser extent, when you mentioned the parking um, tickets thing, it reminded me, and I do not remember the names of anything, so apologies, it does have a specific <laughs> name. But in the UK, I can't even remember what dates it was. They, they needed to get more funding and they, fines were not being paid and stuff like this was happening. So they use specific methods to get these funds. And one of the things they did is if you had a parking fine or a ticket for speeding or something like that, they would show you an image from the CCTV of it being you, of it's your car and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually made the payments received, like go up, I don't remember the specific number, but it was something like 50%, maybe 50 mm -hmm. plus percent. But that's mad <laughs> yeah this is a very key thing that, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of market analysis would love because mm -hmm. again it's a simple almost nudge to a person that doesn't require a huge amount of effort it doesn't require a huge amount of expended resources <laughs> but it generates a massive profit and also this is why behavioral economics is super interesting because it operates in a similar level, on a similar vein, which is basically trying to yeah, nudge people into particular directions by the placement of, let's say, food items in a supermarket, by the placement of that. So people buy, you know, something that is potentially more expensive, but also is going to profit the supermarket quite heavily. So you have all these like small little things here and there that are massively profitable, but incur very limited cost. And that is super important for kind of this market analysis yeah, going on. Thank you for reminding me, James, because it's literally called nudge theory. Yeah. Well done, me. <laughs> You know, you mentioned CCTV, you're more than likely to pay the bill, but also you're more than like if you take them to court, like I did. <laughs> Sometimes the police don't show up for court and then you win the case. Yeah. So it's it's that it's that sort of like you have to be willing to give up time and effort and be annoying. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, Foucault. Mm. Yeah. It's a little bit. <laughs> I wanted to also mention briefly because now we've talked a bit about Foucault and Foucault's ideas and kind of the birth of biopolitics in a more general way. And I wanted to briefly touch on his ideas of power, knowledge, and subject. This kind of nexus that he operates with almost in all of his analysis. And the reason why I saved it, I guess, to the end is because if I brought it up to the beginning, we would have no real examples or real idea of what we on earth we can draw on. And also, it's important, let's talk about power. It's important to note that power is not what we kind of think of initially, which is, you know, these elites holding a power over us and manipulating our actions with their kind of devious machinations and, and things like this. No, so power for Foucault is very, very simple. It's very much practical thing that is enacting upon yourself. So a parking fine, for instance, is, is, is a site of power, is a source of power. A kind of regime of imprisonment that mandates that you do particular work at particular hours, whether that be um, a more kind of factory work, which is the creation of clothes or something like that, or potentially education. These are instances of power being enacted upon uh, a prisoner, for instance. And so it is just a practice, an, an act being being placed on someone. And then that is important because it relates to the subject in a very particular way, which is the power is enacted upon a subject who is understood in a very particular way. So let's bring it back to the example of the fine very clearly, because actually that's a really good one. So the power, the fine itself, is being placed upon a potential criminal because they are understood as a subject, as a rational actor, who will respond to that fine, who will respond to increases in the severity of that fine. So the subject in that case is someone who is self-interested and does not want a, you know, massive, costly thing hanging over their head. And the way this relates to knowledge is the simple fact that all of that was only made possible by a neoliberal ideological frame, essentially. That was, this whole kind of mechanism could only exist because of that. So that's kind of how he links those all together. And the fine is a very kind of nice way of kind of conceptualizing it a little bit. Paolo, you were going to talk about <laughs> um, surveillance art, specifically this notion of Okay, if we're thinking about crime and the subject and rational mm -hmm. actors, who then is the criminal? Yes, yeah, so surveillance art is still a very popular media and it came about in the 60s with the creation of CCTV. Some of my favorite pieces include like this, uh, I forgot who it was, sorry guys, I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this, um, like this giant cube and as you walk, the CCTV plays at a slower rate. So you, you see yourself walk past the CCTV and it's really tricky if you just walk around in circles. But specifically, I wanted to bring about the work of truly a villain <laughs> to everyone. Rest in peace. <laughs> Vito Akanshi and his performance art piece called Following Peace. So um, the thing with performance art, it's a performance. It is an instantaneous action. So all you have are leftover photographs and descriptions of the work. So this was sponsored by the MoMA. <laughs> so this is Rockefeller money, more than likely. And the TLDR is Vito Conchi's uh, piece was about um, barriers and surveillance and how far he could take 
something. So he would choose someone, an attendant at the MoMA, and he would follow them home. So he would, you know, they would, he would follow them leaving the museum, going in the subway, and like opening the door to their apartment building, going up the stairs, and sometimes even to the apartment of the person. So where I'm going with all of this is many different questions. One, what is the limitation between crime and art? If we had done this, that would have been stalking. But if you have a nice little grant to do all of this, it is a performance art piece. But also, like, it goes into that, like, divisions of power. He has the, even though you are the one holding the keys, you're the one turning the door, you're the one basically being able to push him away, some people just ran. Yeah, does it come to gender if he was following a woman or a man? Yeah, that could play into it. But also the power he has to just push the door and force himself in. So it's like, it's obviously less Foucault, but still kind of Foucault type. But it just made me think of, uh, that's the art piece that I chose for for this one. Yeah, because it is is really interesting because Foucault does say at one point, like, what makes a criminal? Who is the criminal? What makes a crime? And you're right. Because I was also thinking about in terms of power, it's not just, and I'm probably like misusing power, so James, correct me. <laughs> but um, it's not just the power to open the door. It's the power bestowed by the museum, right? It's like, oh, I can do this. I have the right to do this because this museum has given me the right to do this. You know what I mean? This is a direct quote of his. Uh, I am almost not an I anymore. I put myself in the service of this scheme. Right? (laughs) I told you to look into him. He's wild. (laughs) But it's, you know, this is, it's difficult, you know, speaking about this piece also because we weren't there. We were not born in the 1960s. Well, also this is 1969 that this is happening. New York is also a very dangerous place. This is before the cleaning up of New York City and all of that. But it, it goes back into the, yeah, what is power? And then like the power is it bestowed upon a museum, it's bestowed upon by money willing to shush who it is he's following unless that person is of equal amounts of power or wealth. And- also this idea, you know, you said, oh, the perform- I, I don't know about this piece, but the performance becomes, it's a performance piece because it, it comes from like the photos and the descriptions of what happened. I wonder, you know, there's also people not being forced, but you've gone through something very scary and now you're describing what happened and that also forms part of the mm-hmm. art. And so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's a creepy looking dude. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. He's a creepy looking dude. I don't care what anyone says. I saw a TikTok earlier today about <laughs> this woman who I can't remember the name of the hotel, so apologies. But it's this woman who is videoing, it's an 18 minute video that she's cut down for TikTok, and it's somebody coming, um, they come into her room, her hotel room. And then they see her in there. She's like not wearing pants or anything. And then he come, he like leaves the room because she's like, get out. He leaves the room and is knocking, knocking and knocking, knocking and knocking for ages. And then she's like, what do you want? And he's like, eventually he says like, there's a car fire in the, uh, basically where all the cars park, garage, in the garage at the hotel. And he's like, there's a fire down there. And she's like, I don't drive. I don't have a car. So why do you want me to leave my room? And he's like, well, just come down to the front desk. And she's like, no. And she calls the front desk and they're like, oh, um, 
We don't know why he's there, but then they stop picking up. She eventually says, it sounds like you're trying to sex traffic me. And he just like pauses. And he's like, well, sorry you feel like that. And it's like a whole, yeah, it's awful. But it kind of reminds me, it reminds me of that because he entered that room, right? And he's a criminal. He's, mm-hmm. that's a bad thing. We all recognize that as like a horrifying thing. You know, the hotels now like silence their um, Instagram comments and everything and all this stuff. And, and she's going through a lot because of it. But that's a crime. But this guy following for a piece of art, oh, that's not a crime. That's like just fun art. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, Vito Country. There's many other works of his that are the controversial to say the least but it's it's yeah it's like there's a thin line and this is why i like to also once more i say it every single time but i like to use art mm. because we're giving value to these things that in other times would be a crime yeah. and it's also a really interesting point of discussion that also removes a little bit of reality or what we consider <laughs> reality come off the go <laughs> but it, it gives us like a good like little basic talking point I wanted to add, yeah, one or two things essentially, because what we have done in the analysis is basically document how Foucault believes neoliberalism to function. So it is essentially a work of description. It's a work of description that documents how a particular rationality has evolved. It hasn't decided to basically go against that rationality. It hasn't gone, this is a false way of conceptualizing the world. This is a way that is fundamentally wrong. It's not decided that in in any way, shape or form. So I think something that is interesting is to ask, what is the point of Foucault? If, you know, if the analysis isn't performing a critique in the traditional sense, in the way we usually understand critique, which is, oh, this thing is could be improved through X or this thing is wrong because of Y. These are the kind of traditional ways we critique them and they're not available for Foucault. They just haven't really been done in this lecture. And I wanted to ask why should we consider what he says as valuable then if it is just this mere description of what is going on. And I think there are a few authors who offer answers to this question. I think one potential answer is that Foucault wants to wants to build this kind of very particular conception of knowledge and truth production in order that, so that we can understand we can actually create different ones. We can actually ourselves invest in ones that are fundamentally different from this current one we have that is potentially not <laughs> not adequate or not fulfilling mm-hmm. what what he thinks should it should. I think there's also one point is that he's trying to expose ourselves as subjects, how we ourselves think about our behaviours and how we should behave. He wants to expose that in, in quite interesting ways too. So whenever we believe that we should invest in a particular skill or attribute to improve our ability to compete on the marketplace. That is a very questionable idea of how we should operate for Foucault. And and he wants to expose that and to be like, we have created ourselves in very particular ways and in ways that we probably shouldn't. Um, and, and these are just two potentially ways of understanding his, his critique. 
I think also going with the kashik and like it, I felt kind of like it was sort of like what the use of a vanity mirror is. It's just kind of looking at yourself. You can use it for improvement, but sometimes you just stare at it while you're <laughs> brushing your teeth. You know, so I think it's just holding a mirror and being like this you. <laughs> it's not being mean or being it's not praising or castigating oneself. It's just sort of going this is what you're doing. Thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's value in that. I think there's value in basically building something and then showing people this is what is happening. Mm-hmm. Well, we have done this thing that no one has really kind of talked about in this particular yeah. way before, and, and and we need to hold that mirror up. I didn't realize the mirror sort of aspect till I was listening to that Chomsky Foucault debate because Chomsky was using actual like examples of what was happening at the time. There was an agreement between the two on like what neoliberalism could be defined as, but that's where they completely went in separate direction. Foucault was just going, this is it. And Chomsky was like, but we can do better <laughs> or we can do worse <laughs> or we can fight the power. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really interesting to also see the frustration between the two of them mm-hmm. because it, it was that. It was like Foucault was just going, okay, and? <laughs> Gone? Yeah. I have mentioned it before to you both, but I taught a module on basically, it, it's called Becoming Yourself and it's thinking about the self and the idea of the self in a neoliberal world. Incredible module, by the way. I loved it so much. But it got to a point in the module, and I cannot remember the question I asked my students, but I went around the room and I had all asked them this kind of same question. And in my first class were yet like, yeah, I hate neoliberalism. I fight the power. They're doing that whole fight the power thing. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. And then I get to my second class. And particularly one of the students, one of the students like brought it out in all the other students because they clearly, you know, I'm very fight the power and they <laughs> they could sense that from me. So I think they were a little bit like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to say it. But this one student says, you know, she kind of responded in very apathetic ways. She was like, mm, it's happening to me. I don't really like, what am I meant to do about it? But when you're thinking about it in this mirror way um, and the idea of, okay, it's what you make of it, right? It's, it's what you want to take from it. There doesn't need to, if you're thinking in a almost anti-neoliberal way, there doesn't need to be an answer, right? Because neoliberalism would, at least in my mind, imply that there has to be an answer. There has to be a consistent narrative. You know, it's why a lot of people, you know, I, I know somebody, just to take it from <laughs> in another direction, I know somebody who really doesn't like Twitter because they think it's, distilling people's views so that they follow that most liked view to the point where um you know say you see an advert and you're like okay that was a fine advert and then you go on twitter and people are mad about it okay now you're mad about it but would you have been mad about it if you never saw that stuff on twitter you're like kind of in that way does there need to be an answer and are you allowed to just go okay i find i I find this interesting for myself for my own reasons. <laughs> that's a fascinating, um, that's a fascinating way to think about it because I've never really thought about the demand, the need for an answer, the need for an opinion as well. Mm-hmm. The actual, the way actually opinions are kind of 
constructed, especially on Twitter and, and these places, in ways that you demand, they are demanded almost. Mm-hmm. They are demanded and you are demanded to have the most truthful, the best, the, the ideal version of this opinion. And in doing so, you actually adhere to kind of certain certain values of neoliberalism because you're promoting basically structures and algorithms which are designed for profit yeah and so people now have um, whole careers based on having opinions yeah (laughs) (laughs) like us (laughs) well i mean there's a courage i guess then in stepping back and, and not expressing not not buying into that as, as, as wholeheartedly as some would. Yeah, and it's also this idea... <laughs> I feel like I could talk about this way. It's also this idea that you have to know what's happening about mm-hmm. everything all the time. And if you don't, you're somehow failing. And I just... <laughs> I'm I hate, tired. I hate that I'm going to say this right at the end because I'm, I'm not going to break this up <laughs> at all. But it's sort of like... Dare I say this last chapter is also an introduction or like a prelude to like intersectionality mm-hmm. and the issues with intersectionality and the benefits of intersectionality. And with that, we're gonna leave that. <laughs> if I get you, I'm <laughs> like I'm starving. <laughs> also, state of my stomach. <laughs> also, um, let us finish then on fan fiction let's bring it back down let's get into the nitty gritty dirty world as james did. <laughs> oh my god yeah james was stressed okay. james have you ever looked at fan fiction I've before i've never looked at fan fiction in my Interesting. life so this was this was a particular experience for me so when when i was demanded not demanded but when i was told i need to look encouraged. at encouraged encouraged to look at fan fiction I thought it would be a fun experience, and it was to to a certain extent. So I think I think my problem essentially was is that I went to it, and then it got quite intense, quite quick. A lot of them, um, but there are a few I really really enjoy. So there's this one called Frustrations and Late Foucault, which is very fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll give you a brief rundown. It's about you know two intensely competitive students who have always kind of had a deep and bitter rivalry between each other and and that appealed to me because of this yeah because i i find that element of two students you know fighting with all their worth or like any any two people fighting all their worth and and trying to become the best in their field no matter what field i find that a very entertaining principle and then they slowly and inevitably fall in love and and this is kind of the premise of it and it's hilarious read because it's very tropey but it's also the best read ever because it's very tropey um yeah yeah um that one's also a bts one (laughs) (laughs) so do not do the army that way James, you did this to us. <laughs> James is not available on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you can't go find James. <laughs> Mine was um, Alphaco no knickers, as in the underwear. Do not isolate my voice. <laughs> I have an accent. And it is a dogma one. The summary is Bartleby? Bartleby? Something. B. <laughs> and Loki are celebrity wine tasters. 
Loki has read too much French post-structuralism for anyone's well-being. Do you know what? I was so close to choosing that one. But my problem was, I felt it didn't include enough post-structuralism for me. The other one, the one that I mentioned beforehand, it's about two students who are focusing on, you know, sociology, gender mm-hmm. studies, and I'm like, this is this is fantastic. This is, you know, frustrations of my figure. So I did enjoy um, the other one about, you know, the wine tasting, but I felt that, uh, yeah. It's just you have to read it. Oh no, I didn't. I really wanted to because I, if I'm going to recommend something, I should, you know, I, I need to commit. I need to ensure that what I'm recommending is. I mean, it's not. It's quality, you know. I will back that. I'll say it's a quality piece. I genuinely actually really enjoyed it. So I, don't know I don't know. I don't want to insult the author because I, I had a fun time. <laughs> you should leave a kudos. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. You have to create an account. Um. <laughs> I don't think you do. Do you? Mm-hmm. You would know better than I do. Uh, certain tags require a uh, an account. I have an account, don't worry. Oh, actually, we were going to have a, um, a podcast account yeah. so we can give kudos on those because no one's finding out who I am on Avery. <laughs> so my one is called The Great Philosopher Bake Off by Starlight Fury. And it's literally just the philosophers <laughs> um, explaining their views on culture and literary criticism through cakes. And I kind of want to read Foucault's one. but also. <laughs> But also there's Karl Marx, um, Adorno, Stuart Hall, Edward Said. There's loads. Can you please? I am so <laughs> desperate for that. You have no idea. Like, this I is... will this to you. Oh my god. That's so, the greatest thing I've ever heard. I want to read just Foucault's cake and I want to see if we agree with the choice of cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Foucault says... I've made a chocolate cake with vanilla frosting and decorated it to look like a panopticon. This, of course, represents my cultural theory of self-surveillance and the circulation of power over the individual among all levels of society. The purpose of panopticon as a prison model is to induce in the inmate a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. Culture functions in the same way, instilling values about what behaviour is acceptable in society, making it a tool in the exercising of power. Would we have a chocolate cake, though? <laughs> Do you know what I love about it? It's chocolate, but it's vanilla on top. So you know that it's kind of a, a manipulation of like what is standardly thought of as chocolate cakes. So it's a kind of... It's a transgression, even then. He should have chose red velvet. The norm. It's basically like chocolate cake. By the way, I would say, if that is the quality of all, like, the philosophical discussions of the cake making, then, oh my gosh, this this person has read so much great philosophy and is a king, but, wow. I need, I need Also, can I just say, I did have another one um, that I can also send to you, I, I won't read it, but it's called Many Forms of Resistance. And it's basically a zombie drama with Foucault in it. And the summary is, no one had ever expected a critical theory conference to end so poorly. The worst you could usually expect was that somebody would get wine thrown on them. And then it goes into zombie apocalypse. Mm -hmm. I like that one as well, but I'm more confident. I really want to see what Edward Said's cake is. Oh my god, we should start sending these to our students. Do you want to understand philosophy? Yeah. Honestly. Here's a fan fiction about bake-off. Anyway, um, that was good. Uh, James, do you have anything to plug your... 
details, I anything. I have nothing to plug. Or do you, you cannot find to... me anywhere. Yeah. Uh, please don't find me anywhere. <laughs> um, if you have disagreed with any of my analysis, please be kind to me. Um, don't be to me. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I wish you people could find me, but they just can't really. <laughs> Maybe if they fundamentally stalk me, they'll find my email address somewhere. And then hit me an email if you manage to do that. Wow, that's, that is commitment. Um, I recommend holding a sign to your nearest CCTV. Yeah, I'll just be there. Just hold a sign and I'll just pop out of the woodwork. It's like Beetlejuice, but... Maybe... Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. Since James doesn't have any form of social media, you just shoot us an email and type in biopolitics in the email header, and we can redirect it over to James. (laughs) If you put biopolitics bestie, we're more likely to read it. (laughs) Yeah, I want humor and uh, new fanfics. We'll approach Foucault again. (laughs) Yes, and um, anything on Sedwick, we still haven't finished reading. Epistemology of the Closet. Yeah, we might take a little mini hiatus with that. We were going to do the last half of the book, but we, yeah. we're going to have a look. We're not a good book club. <laughs> we're a podcast. We're a podcast. Um, anyway, yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs>Thank you so much for listening to Theoryish. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your thoughts. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter at Theoryish underscore pod for up-to-date information. And please rate, follow, and leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. If you're interested in finding anything we have mentioned in the episode, please check our show notes or description to find more details. You can also contact us at theoryishpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Goodbye.